Judges chapter 13. Yeah, that's, that's right. Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. Not a typo. <laughs> so, just so you understand, as we go into this, we are now into the story of a particular, the last, actually, of the guardians of the judges in this book. It's not the last chapter, chapter 16. We'll continue on beyond that. You will see how messed up things became truly in Israel in that day. But as we come to this last story, we opened up chapters 13 and 14 on Wednesday night. We're gonna do chapters 15 and 16 this next Wednesday. And in the in-between, as I was studying and thinking about this, I realized, you know, we're only gonna spend this amount of time with this particular judge. And so this morning is gonna have kind of an overview feel to it. That's why it's all four chapters, is we're gonna do an overview, really look in a broad way at the whole life of this judge. Again, more specific, last Wednesday and this coming Wednesday. If you missed last Wednesday, it's up on YouTube, and you can come this Wednesday and get the nitty-gritty. And the nitty-gritty is pretty gritty. <laughs> but let's, let's um, check this out. Judges chapter 13, look at verse 24. Judges 13, 24, which says, then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Shimshon, Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. And Father, as we study your word this morning, I just pray for insight and understanding. I ask, Lord, that the teaching be clear. And truly, while we are looking at this man, I pray that you will help us to see Jesus. That's our desire and our hope as we go through your word because this is all about you, Lord. So give us instruction. We await your word in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you ask people who is the strongest man in the Bible, the most common answer is Samson. He, he's the go-to. He's the biblical combination of Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, and the Incredible Hulk. You know, all rolled into one. Most people, church going or not, have heard of Samson, something about this strong man, something of that story, that, that romance, so-called, between Samson and Delilah, Samson, the strong man. Well, the Bible says, Isaiah chapter one, verse 31, the strong man will become tender. That's not T-E-N-D-R as in soft, that's T-I-N-D-R as in kindling. The strong man will become tender or kindling. His work also a spark. They shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them. Samson is truly mighty indeed, but he's weak in character. As you see throughout his life, this is a man who is deeply and carnally flawed. In fact, as you go through the overview of Samson, if you just read chapter 13 through chapter 16 of Judges, what you find is something very different than any of the prior judges. One commentator wrote, this is Daniel Block, if the aesthetic value of a literary work is measured by the extent to which it satisfies, surpasses, disappoints, or disproves the expectations of its first readers, then the Samson cycle of stories must rank as a masterpiece. The narrator's skill in both meeting expectations and evoking surprise, if not consternation, begins with the structure of the story of Samson and the Philistines. The whole pattern that we've seen so far with all of the judges, and there have been seven generations now, seven cycles, seven messed up, nauseous carousels of cycles through the judges. We get now to Samson, and this story cycle is very different. Different than all the others. It's almost as if the pattern in the book of Judges is just thrown out when you come to the story of Samson. The previous Judges and the previous cycles of pain and problems and then rescue and deliverance, all of that has followed a pattern. It's been national or at least tribal in focus, and now it is replaced by a glaring spotlight on one dude. Now, there are national implications in what Samson does, but the focus is him. 
The focus is on his missteps, his mistakes, and his battles. It is a very self-centered picture of a man whose conflicts are of his own choosing, making Samson a different thing altogether. Let me outline it for you. A four-part outline following these four chapters. Chapter 13, we have Samson's nativity, which is very interesting because we don't have that with any of the other judges. The other judges are already around when God calls them to fight or stand for Israel. Samson is called before he's even born. And chapter 13 is that whole entire story of the nativity, if you will, of a savior, interesting, because he is such a contrast from Jesus. So different, night and day. But it's his nativity, his birth announcement, his actual birth, and and it's the beginning of a larger deliverance for Israel. And we talked about that last week, that it is the beginning, and you gotta note that, the beginning. He shall begin, chapter 13, verse five, to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So it doesn't mean that he's gonna deliver Israel from the Philistines, he won't, but he'll begin to. It'll start with him. So chapter 13 is Samson's nativity. Uh, Chapter 14 is Samson's marriage, both its beginning and its end. A short-lived marriage to a Philistine girl, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Chapter 15 is Samson's wrath. He will burn the Philistines' fields by foxfire, (laughs) literally. It's a wild story in which he takes the tails of foxes ties them together and adds a torch to each one and sends them into the fields of the Philistines, burning them all down. He is then going to kill 1,000 Philistines on Jawbone Hill. It's called Jawbone Hill because his weapon of choice is the jawbone of a donkey. That's chapter 15, Samson's wrath. And then finally, chapter 16, Samson's takedown, both his own takedown and that of the Philistines. There's one thing that ties it all together, and that is Israel and God's unrequited love for his people. Israel and God's unrequited love and their unrequested salvation, that's a huge difference between this story cycle and any of the others. In every other story, the people cried out, the people repented, the people confessed. They said, oh Lord, save us. Do whatever you will with us, but save us from our enemies. In this story cycle, they are completely content to be ruled by the Philistines. We talked about that on Wednesday. What what does it mean when a people are content to be oppressed. I wonder what that means in our country right now. Are we content with spiritual oppression? Is our world content with just the way things are? So Samson's takedown is the fourth one, and all this is tied together by what's happening in Israel, what's what's going on, the sensibility of the people, and how God comes to rescue his people even when they don't ask for it. By the way, And we're gonna do this really quickly, but I wanna give you several ways that Samson actually personifies Israel. Like you can see what's going on in the heart of Israel by just looking at the one man. First of all, note that Samson is miraculously born by the will of God. His mother, the wife of Manoah, is barren at the beginning of chapter 13. That's how we meet her. Barren, empty, like Israel. And the Lord comes in the person of the angel of the Lord, shows up, the Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew, and he says, you're gonna have a baby. Wait, she's barren, exactly. God does that all the time in the Bible, across history. And so he comes to her, and, and she miraculously, her womb is open. She is able to give birth. Now, it's not, it's not miraculous like Jesus, but it's a miraculous birth in that she was not able. And then she was enabled to give birth, and her husband, Manoah, and she have a son. So miraculously born, that's Israel. Israel as a people would not exist if not for the will of God, if not for God's desire to make it happen. So Israel is a miraculously born people. Secondly, Samson is called to a life of separation and devotion to Yahweh. Even before he's born, his mother is told he's going to be a Nazarite. Do you remember the Nazarite vow? a vow of devotion to God, anyone could do it, man or woman. 
And what you would do, Numbers chapter six says, you would not cut your hair, you would not touch wine or strong drink of any kind, even the grapes, and you would stay away from dead things. And you could commit to do that for a couple of months or for a year. In Samson's case, God called him to be holy from birth, to be set apart from birth. That's Israel. From the very beginning of their miraculous birth as a people, God said, I have chosen you, you are my chosen people, to be a light to the world, to be set apart, to show the world who I am. That was the original call on the people of Israel, just as on Samson. Thirdly, he is lustfully drawn to foreign women. This is Samson's great problem, just as Israel was drawn to foreign gods parallels start to become a little intense. Samson personally experiences the bondage and oppression of the enemy. What other people has experienced more oppression and bondage throughout history than the people of Israel? So the picture is crystallizing here. We see, number five, Samson is spiritually and ultimately physically blinded, which is exactly what the Bible says would happen with Israel. Number six, Samson is temporarily abandoned by Yahweh and he doesn't even know it. And I would submit to you, I, I, have, I have several now very dear friends who live in Israel who are Jewish people, but they don't even know that they don't have the relationship with Yahweh that they think that they have, that that's not gonna come until they know Jesus. And Samson, you'll see this, there's a point in his life where he literally doesn't realize, the Bible says, didn't even know Yahweh was not with him. Had no clue. Finally, number seven, Samson cries out to Yahweh from his bondage in chapter 16 at the very end and is delivered from death. This is an amazing picture in one man of a people, of God's work with Israel. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, how is that last one like Israel that they're delivered in death? I mean, Samson dies. What do you mean that Israel is delivered in death? Israel is and will be delivered in the death of the perfect Jew, Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget, Jesus was born, lived, and died a Jew. First for Israel and then for the Gentile. Romans 1.16, that's the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or, or the Gentile. So Samson, already, and we haven't even gotten into these four chapters that we're gonna study verse by verse by verse this morning. I'm kidding. I haven't even gotten there yet. But Samson, Shimshon, his Hebrew name means sunshine, but this is a dark and troubling story. A story of God's choice, a strange choice in a judge, in a guardian, and a story of God's strength in a very unruly man. We've been calling this, this teaching series through Judges Guardians of the Unruly, and yet this last guardian is as unruly, if not more so, than the people themselves. His story is marked by Four women. I almost call this Samson's women because that's such, uh, at the heart of the life that he lives, the very first woman is Samson's wise mother. And you might jot these down. I'll give you four things to jot down. The third one is gonna be difficult to jot down, but I'll just give you that warning ahead of time. But four things. Number one, Samson's wise mother, chapter 13, verse three. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, now you are barren, you have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God, not a Nazarene, <laughs> like Jesus from Nazareth, but a Nazarite, again, it's that vow, that special vow in the law of Moses. He shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And as the story begins, I already pointed out she's, she's barren, but then as the story unfolds, we see this gentle, quiet, waiting wisdom 
in Samson's mother. She remains anonymous to us this day. We don't know what her name was. She's never called by name. A barren, anonymous woman, and yet the impact of this one woman, if you stop and look at her life, is, is pretty profound. Verse eight tells us that her husband, Manoah, entreated the Lord and said, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent to us again, send him again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Now that's a good prayer for any parent. <laughs> Lord, we don't have a clue, help. It's basically what he's saying. God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. And we pointed this out on Wednesday night and it's just, it still rings so profound to me. Manoah's name means rest, but his wife is the one who's sitting in the field. And not sitting at home, not sewing, not, not cooking the next meal, not working the garden, not busy around the house. She's sitting in the field. Why is she sitting in the field? And I submit to you because she's waiting for the Lord. That there's a picture here of a woman who after her husband called out to the Lord for help, she is now waiting for it, expectantly looking for it. No wonder the Lord came to her rather than to her husband. He prayed, but where is he now? Probably off at work, probably off busy doing something, working on the car, watching the game, I don't know. But isn't it like us to pray the prayer and then to get busy with life? And here we have a picture of a woman who after her husband prayed the prayer says, I'm gonna wait for the answer. Interesting. And so then after she and her husband see God in the Malach Yahweh, skip down to verse 22, it tells us that Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. This is a wise woman. This is a thinking woman. We also realize that she herself lived the Nazarite vow, at least in her pregnancy. That when the angel of the Lord came to her, he said, listen, you need to do this prior to the birth of your son because he is going to be born and called to live a separate holy life. So let's start with you, mom. Boy, that's wisdom right there. Let's start with mom and dad. Why would we as parents expect our kids to do what we're not willing to do? So she's a wise woman, a wise woman. Number two, Samson's whiny wife, chapter 14. Samson's whiny wife. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, strike one. She's a Philistine. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, now therefore get her for me as a wife. I told everybody on Wednesday night, there are in this passage, there are four different times where it says Samson saw, he saw, he saw. And that is so Samson, he saw. He, he, it's kind of like he's a she saw because that's what he's just, he sees her, he's always seeing her. And so I drew in my Bible a little eyeball all the way down the chapter so I could go, yep, there he is. There he's seeing again. He saw a woman of Timnah. He says to his father and mother, I saw a woman. Samson's got eye trouble. <laughs> and it's going to eventually lead to his total blindness, as we'll see. But he sees this Philistine woman, this whiny wife she'll become. Uh, I call her his Philistine filly. And he wants her. In verse three, he, he says, he says to his dad, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Notice that, get her for me. She looks good to me at the very end of the verse. You know what the literal translation of that is? Get her for me, she's right in my eyes. Does that sound familiar? That is the key verse of Judges, Judges 17, 16. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Samson is personifying where the people are at. She's right, she looks good to me. She's a Philistine. 
The Jewish law does not allow for him to marry outside. God said, I want you to marry within the family of Israel. But she looks right to me. She looks good in my own eyes. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. The world is passing away and its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know what's really interesting? Science for a long time was debating the existence, the, the length of the existence of planet Earth and the, and the universe. For a long time, there was a theory out there that said it, it would continue on, that it would be a never-ending proposition. But science itself, itself has proven this Earth will die. This universe will collapse. That is out ahead of us. That is the law of entropy. It cannot be avoided. That's coming. And so when John says the world is passing away, even science today would say, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, we can try and find another planet and rocket ourselves over there, but guess what? That one's gonna pass away too. The world is passing away. What then? What then? That question needs to stir in all of our hearts. What then? And let me make it a little more personal to you. Much as I love y'all, you're all passing away. Every last, I'm not, but you, we are all passing away. Our life is temporary. What then? What then? Verse 16, after I've cheered you up a bit. Samson's wife wept before him. So he marries this Philistine woman, this Philistine girl, and she wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me and you have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, behold, I've not told it to my father and mother. Why should I tell you? This is a really healthy marriage. However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him so hard, and she then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So she betrays her husband. Proverbs 19, verse 13 says, and this, this is a precious verse for any marriage, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Let me just read that again, because I want to make sure nobody missed it. The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Now, wives, if that offends you, is that you? I mean, if it's not you, don't be offended. But if it's you, maybe you ought to think about it. The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. And dear sisters, if that is you, you can repair, you can repair the faucet. All you got to do is replace the dripping with praying, with praying, and you will find contention goes away. But this was a marriage, again, it was just doomed to fail from the very beginning. It is a fatal combo of this man's lust with this woman's duplicity. It is not a match made in heaven. So Samson's wise mother, Samson's whiny wife, we'll see an end to this relationship on Wednesday night when we come back and study it, you might not want to write the next one down. It's Samson's welcoming whore. Now, I'm really out to offend everyone I can this morning. Some would be upset that I used the word. Some would, would, would hear that and go, oh, this is church, Rick. Yeah, and in the church, we speak the truth. And honestly, I don't like that word. I would much rather say harlot or, or prostitute, that's the word that the Bible uses here. But to say whore in a Sunday morning teaching, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I was a youth pastor. We were out at a church in Virginia, and I had a young man in our youth group who, um, he had Tourette's. Now, that's really fun in a high school group. <laughs> and he would sit in the second row, and, and the way it affected him was if he heard a certain word that was slightly off or slightly offensive, uh, he would immediately start repeating it. Well, I'm talking about the woman that was a prostitute in the ministry of Jesus. And the moment I said prostitute, and I was explaining to the kids, I'm like, 
this, this is a harlot, a prostitute, a whore. And he goes, she's a whore, 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 whore. <laughs> and I'm going. <laughs> I'm looking around, is there an elder nearby, you know? Because this could be the end of my ministry. I, of course, I didn't show porn on a Sunday morning, but. <laughs> By the way, have y'all heard that story? <laughs> I love you, Jake. Ask Jake about it. He'd love to share it with you. Anyway, <laughs> this woman is a welcoming whore. I accept the word is rough, but let me save you the time of emailing me about this later. That's what she was. That is what she was. I don't know why we should soften or understate it. That's what she was. We're told in chapter 16, verse one, if you look over there, Samson went to Gaza. Side note, isn't it interesting it's still called Gaza today? See, that's Israel. The names are the same. The names throughout the land are the same as they were 3,000 years ago. Little has changed in terms of that identification and the identity of people living there. Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her why do people try to soften or, or, or wink at or, or just you know, ignore the practice or the behavior of Samson even more? I actually read a commentator who tried to say he wasn't going into her for the reason that you would think. Why do you go to a prostitute? There's only one reason and it's not to have tea. Why are you, this commentator literally said, well, maybe Samson was just trying to hide out from the Philistines. Then why are you going to Gaza, which is Philistine country? You don't go into the heart of the enemy to hide from the enemy. And he goes down to Gaza. Why does he go down to Gaza to find a harlot there? Probably because it was easier than where he lived. Probably because he knew he could. So he heads down there having a wise mother and then having a whiny wife. And now he heads down to Gaza and he finds this welcoming whore. And, and we don't know really anything else about her other than that she was there. And he went into her and she received him. Why'd he go to Gaza? Because he knew what he could get there. Here's a woman now who is in place to feed the lust of a carnal man. See, the devil will do that. He will set people in place. He will set situations in place that you run into to feed your lust. What did we talk about earlier? Jesus will feed you to satisfaction, not just momentary appeasement of lust. Proverbs chapter six, verse 24. I've backed it up, actually, verse 23. Proverbs 6, 23 says, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is is a light. This is a good thing. This is to help us see. This is to clarify our lives. And reproofs for discipline are a way, the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now, men and women, this could go either way, all right? A man can lure a woman like a woman can lure a man, maybe differently, but still, we can tempt each other to do things that will be harmful to us but the proverb says, Proverbs 6, verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let it capture you with her eyelids, for on account of one harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. That word for bread, or for loaf, on the account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And I submit to you, that's where Samson's at right now. The loaf in the Hebrew speaks of a circle of bread. It's the smallest, kind of, we would think of like a dinner roll. <laughs> a, lo a small circle of bread. They still make bread this way in, in Italy today. Little round loaves. And, and that's the picture here. And the idea here of a man being reduced to a loaf of bread is he is now becoming impoverished. And it's not just impoverished of money, but impoverished of self. And the Bible talks about this, and our culture pushes back, and the world pushes back, and nobody gets it, that sexual sin leaves people empty. Sexual immorality is impoverishing 
to the self. You're giving yourself away. And especially in a situation like this where he goes down to a prostitute and gives himself, he's giving some of himself away. He is impoverishing himself. It's kind of like the heel at the end of the loaf, you know? No one wants to eat it. Is that like that in your family? I go to get the bread, and I'm telling you, Nine times out of 10, I find the heel on both ends wrapped up in the package and stuck back in the pantry. I'm like, throw it away if you're not gonna eat it. I'm not gonna have my peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a couple of heels. I could really have some fun with that one. I'm gonna let that go. But I wanna remind you again of what we shared at communion, of Valentine's verse, of Matthew 14, 20 that says they all ate and were satisfied. But there's more to it They then picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. You know what? If you have in some way sinned against the Lord, I'll say in any way sinned against the Lord, if you have in your life experienced or given yourself over to sexual immorality or sexual sin such that you're impoverished in your spirit, listen to me, God picks up and saves the broken pieces. My life is reduced to a loaf of bread. Jesus saves the leftover loaves. Jesus picks up the broken pieces. What a beautiful picture of the grace of God. So Samson's wise mother, his whiny wife, and his welcoming whore. Number four, Samson's wily woman. His girl fiend, friend. Delilah, she is Samson's wily woman. Chapter 16, verse four, after this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him, and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Question, was Delilah an Israelite or a Philistine? You are wise not to answer because the Bible doesn't tell us. We have no idea if she was a Philistine serving the people of the Philistines or if she was an Israelite but was being allured by the Philistines. You know what? It doesn't matter to us because it didn't matter to her. Tell you something about uh, Delilah. She had 1,100 silver reasons to betray Samson. That's at the heart of this story. She's like... She's like Lucy in a Charlie Brown Christmas. All she wanted was that wonderful sound of clinking money, that beautiful sound of cold hard cash, nickels, 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 that beautiful sound of clinking nickels. That's Delilah. We'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver if you will betray him to us. Let's just be clear that the story of Samson and Delilah is not a Hollywood love story. It is an absolute tragedy. It's a con, it's a fraud, it's a scam. We're told that Samson loved her, I'm thinking more like lusted after, loved perhaps in his own mind, wanted her for himself. Did she ever love him? Is there ever ever even a hint of that? No, no. But she loved the idea of 1,100 pieces of silver. So four women who, who you could say mark out Samson's life. They, they are a picture of his life. He was all eyes for the feminine prize. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Samson. That's Samson's life of lust seeing a woman, wanting a woman, going into a woman, finding a woman, this is Samson. And Jesus says whether he actually committed adultery or not, by his desire, his lust for these women, he did in his heart over and over and over. Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Just lose your eye, give it up. Don't let it cause you to stumble. Now, if we followed that prescription legalistically to a T, none of us would have any sight left at all. 
Matthew 18, 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, he repeats, pluck it out and throw it from you. Now, when the people heard him say that, they hadn't heard it like a verse repeated in church many times over the years. They heard it and went, gross, man. What are you talking about? Pluck out my eye. And Jesus was being extreme to make the point that it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast, Jesus said, into the fiery hell. I wish Jesus wouldn't talk about hell. You know why he does? Because he doesn't want you to go there. Because his love is so great that rather than just leave you to that option, he says, I don't want you to end up there. By the way, this is exactly what happened to Sonny Boy. Mr. Sunshine, Samson himself, if you look at chapter 16, verse 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze chains and he was a grinder in the prison. Blind, bald, chained like a dog in a Philistine jail. This is where this great guardian of Israel ends up. Can you imagine Samson in that place? What must have been going through his mind? What if this was you? You had known the strength, the mighty spirit of the Lord on you. You had been powerful in your time. You were invincible. And next thing you know, you are literally blinded. Your eyes put out and you were tied up and you were grinding in a Philistine mill and your mind has to be spinning. What went wrong? What am I doing here? How did I miss this? And I wonder if Samson wished that he had never had eyes to see a woman in the first place. It would literally take his physical eyes being blinded for him to begin to really see. And we'll talk about that on Wednesday. By contrast, so those are the women of Samson, and there's kind of an arc of Samson's life. What about the women of Jesus? You ever stop to just focus on them, think about them? I'll give you three examples of them. Number one, the women of Jesus knew he was salvation. So the women in Jesus' day who came across Jesus, who had interactions with Jesus, they did not see him as a physical threat. They did not see him as one lusting after them and after their physical selves. They saw him as salvation. The sinful woman, we're told by the Bible, perhaps not unlike Samson's harlot, who barges in on lunch at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Do you remember the story? It's in Luke chapter seven. You can read the whole thing, but she comes rushing in. Jesus is at this, <laughs> at this Pharisee's home, and Simon is already trying to look for a way to figure out who this Jesus is, and he, there's, there's an arrogance there in the way he treats Jesus in that story coming into his house. This woman rushes in. She weeps at the feet of Jesus, realizes her tears are soaking his feet, and she begins to pour perfume, expensive perfume on his feet and begins to wipe them with, his, with her hair. This, by the way, is not Mary who will anoint Jesus for his death later at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. No, this is a different woman. And, and she realizes her sinful state before God, how lost she is. She is broken. And she comes in before Jesus. And as she's doing these things, he says to her, Luke chapter seven, verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little, Mr. Religious Man, Mr. Simon. And then he said to her, and can you imagine how this sounded to her? Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Now, if you say that to someone who doesn't think they have any sin to be forgiven, they're gonna think you're a jerk. But if you say that to someone who knows the sin in their life, who knows that they really do need a savior, to hear the savior say that, your sins have been forgiven. We're told that those who are reclining with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The woman came in a broken harlot. She walks out free and saved. What a beautiful story. Tell you what, she knew Jesus as salvation. 
So did the woman who touched the hem of his robe. As he's passing through the town and hordes of people are all around him, running into him, and he's teaching and talking, and they all want to get close to Jesus. And she thinks, if I can just touch the edge of his robe, I don't even have to talk to him. I just know he's the one who can help me. This is the woman who had been 12 years with a hemorrhage, bleeding for 12 years, spent all of her money. The doctors couldn't do a thing. And suddenly, he turns around. She knows the instant she touches the hem of his robe, she is healed. She feels it in her body. By the way, he feels it in his because he says, power went out from me, which every time I think of it, that makes me shudder how awesome that is. And he said to her, Luke 8, 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And a woman whose life was absolutely desperate walks away from Jesus in peace and saved. She knew Jesus as salvation. And then there's the woman at the well it's high noon, she's alone, used, probably abused through multiple failed marriages, and now the guy she's living with, she's not married to, and Jesus says to her, John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, which in the Hebrew vernacular, what he is saying is, I got something you need. He recognizes the life that she's living, but you hear no judgment, no condemnation. You just hear the offer of salvation from Jesus for this woman. And we know that she leaves her buckets at the well and rushes back into the town and says, I think I've met the Messiah, a woman whose life has been changed. In Luke 7, 15, we see a widow leaving the city of Nain. Her only son is dead, so she's a widow. She's lost her husband. Now she's lost her son. She is all alone in the world, but Jesus raises him from the dead and gives him back to his mother. Why? Because he loves. And that woman walked away from Jesus with her son, her life saved. By the way, I've always wondered when Jesus did that, if he was thinking about his own mother. When he raised that boy from the dead and gave him back, I wonder if he was thinking about Mary and what it would be like for her watching him die and life after he would depart and his human heart for his mother, you know, must have been great. Matthew 15, he heals a Canaanite woman's daughter. And in John 11, he raises Lazarus back to the dead. Why? For the sake of Mary and Martha to give their brother back to them, to care for them, to cover them. Jesus' interaction with women throughout his ministry is stunning, and perhaps the apex moment that so many people recognize is the woman caught in the act of adultery, thrown down in front of him in the temple. A woman who the religious types, and we should be convicted by that, the religious types said, let's call her out. She's the problem throws her down in front of Jesus. You know the story, John chapter eight, where Jesus says, tell you what, the, the one who has no sin among you, go ahead, stoner. And the Bible says from oldest to youngest, they dropped the rocks and walked away because they knew they couldn't. And when they left and there were no witnesses and, and there was no one left, he straightens up John eight, verse 10 and says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. How did she leave the temple court that day? Saved. A woman whose life was touched and saved by the precious love of Jesus. So different than Samson. Have you ever thought about that? All the women that Jesus loved but loved with an unconditional, godly love, not like Samson's lust. He loved them and gave them what was best for them, what they needed more than anything else. So the women of Jesus, they saw him as salvation. The women of Jesus also, by the way, they supported his ministry. I think this is really cool. Luke 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's a mess. 
and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. He had a little group of women following him around, women he had saved, who said, what can we do to support this ministry? And they were supporting him financially. They saw in him salvation. They supported his ministry. And then, number three, there's the mother of Jesus. Remember the mother of Samson, that wise mom? Well, then there's the mother of Jesus who was a servant of the Lord. You need to cast Mary that way, understand Mary that way. I don't worship Mary. I don't venerate Mary. She was not immaculately conceived. That is not of the Bible, nor is she the mother of God, and I understand that that is a Catholic terminology for her. Those are human misconceptions. Those are not biblical. But I'll tell you what I do agree with when it comes to Mary, that she bears the highest title a follower of Jesus can possibly know. Luke 1.38, Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. A servant. I, you know, I don't backlash against Mary because of how she's been highlighted in one religion. I look at Mary as, wow, I wanna meet her. What a servant. Someone who is willing to have her life upended simply to serve the Lord and to follow him. And by the way, her last recorded words in scripture, John chapter two, verse five, whatever he says to you, do it. Speaking, of course, of Jesus. We know that Mary, like everybody else, struggled with her faith. We know there's a scene in Jesus' ministry where she comes along with, with his, his brothers, comes with his family to take him because he's nuts. He's lost it. This isn't right. But Mary would believe in her son as the son at the end. We see that tender moment on the cross, right? When, when Jesus, in the midst of his execution looks down at Mary John 18 26 he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved we believe that was John standing nearby and he said to his mother woman behold your son son behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her into his own household Jesus is caring for everybody even on the cross he's saving thieves he's caring for his mother this is Jesus this is love, not lust. This is a, a, a man whose passion for the world is unparalleled. In total contrast to Samson's women, Jesus had a way with women that invited them to be saved, to support his ministry, and to aspire to the highest calling of servant. And it still impacts us to this day. In fact, I'll put it this way, the women of Jesus still impact us to this very day. These are the kind of women touched and saved by the nature of Christ that God can use. So ladies, if you're wondering, am I the kind of woman God can use? You are if you are touched by his salvation. You are if you know the love of Jesus. You are if Jesus is your main man. We gotta get back to the man for a second here. Why would God choose Samson? That's, that's the question that really should trouble you. Why would God choose Samson from birth, from before birth, calling on his parents? This is my guy. This is the one I've chosen. He's the Nazarite. He's the one I want to begin to save Israel. Why would God choose Samson? Doesn't he know what kind of person Samson's going to be? Doesn't he know the train wreck of a man's life that he's going to see in Samson? And yet, Samson ends up on the starting team of the guardians, <laughs> like Gideon and Jephthah. He also somehow makes the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Yes, Samson is listed too, this lustful man. And yet his judgeship, if you just look at it on the outside, these four chapters, this is a judgeship that is centered on his own carnal, lustful, willful life. Why would God choose him? I'll give you just two reasons to end with. One, God chose him and started his life out. Think about all of Samson's women, but God started his life with the first one, a godly mother. 
You see the intentions of God right there. He knew the problem that women would be in Samson's life. And I'm, by, by the way, not blaming the women for that problem. He knew, God knew where Samson's heart was gonna go and that he would want to find a woman. So how did God start him out? With a godly mom. This is the grace of God. You don't have to be this way. You can find a woman like mom. And that is so instructive that God knew where Samson was headed. So he gives him a standard by which he could measure what a godly woman looks like in his own mother. As the Proverbs so beautifully conclude, Proverbs 31, verse 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the work of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. A godly woman. God gave Samson a godly mother to start his life and so many of us have been given something in our lives that would give us direction, give us standard, help us to see how we are really to be. We have the standard, and then we make our choices. But there's something else that God gave to Samson more times than any of the other judges. God gave Samson his own spirit, his Holy Spirit. And this is unique, by the way. Four women, four women. How many times did God give Samson his spirit? Four times. Four times his spirit. And he gives his spirit unlike the way the spirit is given to any of the other judges. Completely different. Chapter 14, verse six, chapter 14, verse 19, chapter 15, verse 14, in those three examples, we're told that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him mightily or powerfully. That's not how the spirit came upon Gideon. The spirit, we're told, put on Gideon and dwelt Gideon. It's not how the spirit came upon Jephthah. We're told that the spirit came upon him but in the story of Samson, rushed upon him mightily. This was a power surge. This is a sudden burst or flow of spiritual power by which Samson tore apart, literally in the description of the scriptures, tore apart a charging lion. By which he wiped out 30 Philistines, by which he popped off new ropes that were on his arms like they were silly string. <laughs> by which he took out a 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey. He did powerful acts as the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him powerfully. So you can see this interesting dichotomy here that on the one hand, the women of Samson enticed his flesh while the Spirit of God empowered the man. He had it all going for him. A godly mother and the spirit of the Lord that he could have made right choices and he didn't. God used him anyway. Why? The first time we see the spirit of the Lord on Samson is the most difficult. Note this, it's chapter 13, verse 25. Look at it closely. You might wanna jot this down in the margin of your Bible it says that the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And the word stir, mentioned this last week, is pa'am, P-A apostrophe A-M, pa'am. And it literally translates trouble or disturb. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him, and that can mean stir him up, move him, somehow he began to realize the presence of the Holy Spirit. It can mean that, but it more often means to trouble or disturb. Why? I believe that the Spirit of the Lord began to disturb Samson at Mahane Dan, Camp Dan, 
where Samson was born and raised. But the Spirit of the Lord began to trouble Samson there. Why? It is the battle between spirit and flesh. He is a lustful, fleshy man, a carnal man, and the Spirit comes upon him and sets up a very troubled life, a, a, a friction, a combat within him, a civil war, if you will, between his own carnality and the spirit of the living God. Romans chapter eight, verse one says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. But here's the challenge and it's the Romans chapter seven challenge. It's what Paul said, I, I wanna do the right thing but I can't. I got this inner conflict, this turmoil, I'm troubled. Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and begins to trouble him there because his flesh didn't want to go that direction. His flesh fought against the spirit. That's what happens for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Which by the way, I gotta pause there. That doesn't just mean lust. That doesn't just mean carnal sin. It means living for now. It means getting it now, getting it in this life, doing now, that, that's the point of it. We live for the flesh. I'm living for today, because I know this world's not gonna last, so I'm gonna get all I can here and now. That's living for the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. You're just gonna die, and then what's it worth? But the mindset on the Spirit is life, and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. And you've seen that. You've seen that. It doesn't make any sense why people would be hostile to God. Choose him or don't. But what are you mad at him for? Well, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. But the mind, and it goes on and says, it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so we see it, it sets up this, this difficulty, this challenge, the spirit knocking on the door of the heart and, and the, the, the heart of flesh saying, I don't want you, I don't need you, you're irrelevant to me. Well, in Samson's case, the spirit comes upon him and begins to stir and trouble and disturb and upset, and all that was Samson, ah, I want a woman, I want to be strong, I'm gonna go work out, and the Spirit's going, I, I want you, Samson. And there is a battle between the two, right? You ever had your life disturbed by the Spirit of God? I mean, I'll let you just answer that between you and God. Has your life been disturbed or troubled by the Spirit of God. Mine has, mine has. The things that I wanted to do, the directions I wanted to go, <laughs> not what he had in mind. And sometimes that can be troubling. And it's especially troubling if the attitude is, hey, it's my life. That's the old Billy Joel song, right? I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life. Don't go dumping your spiritual stuff on me. I'm good on my own. I'm strong in and of myself, and the strong man will become kindling. His work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. Listen, God's Holy Spirit is either going to stir in you or trouble you. How you respond is entirely up to you. That's your call. And that's the beauty, I think, of, of following Jesus. And sadly, a lot of times in churches and in organizations, there's a lot of pressure. That's not God. He's not putting pressure, but he is offering his spirit. And you have to deal with that and deal with him. But what you do with him, that's up to you. It's not up to me. It's not up to this church. It's not up to 
the church in general, it's not up to some shepherd or, or pastor or priest. It's up to you. Spirit's gonna stir. How do you respond? You can be kindling or you can kindle. First, or 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, for this reason I remind you, Paul says to Timothy, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. Paul says, Timothy, stir up. Kindle afresh. And maybe that's you. See, that's the thing. The, the, the Spirit's gonna come upon us to stir us up or in many cases to disturb, trouble, trying to get a person's attention. But if you walk with the Lord for a time, you may have in your life been really excited about Jesus early on, but now not so much. Stir up, kindle afresh. Romans chapter eight, verse 12 says, so then brethren, we're not under, we are under obligation not to the flesh, but to live, or to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, generically, sons and daughters, people of an inheritance. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the man God can use. That's the woman God can use. Again, back to the question, but didn't he call on a fleshly, carnal Samson? Yes, he did. And the story of Samson seemingly ends tragically, and yet maybe not. And I'm gonna hold off on giving that final answer till Wednesday night, so you gotta come back. See, it's a bait and switch. I'll be honest. <laughs> of all the times that we see the Spirit of the Lord rushing onto this man's life, I want you to note something. As we conclude here, chapter 16 doesn't have a single mention of the Holy Spirit. Samson's life ends, as it were, devoid of power, devoid of strength, devoid of the Spirit. And in fact, again in chapter 16, verse 20, it says, Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And it appears in that moment that by Samson's choices, the flesh won. Flesh won the day. That's the end for Samson. The strong man ends up tender, kindling for the fire. And even then, at the very end of Samson's life, okay, I can't help myself, there is a faint glimmer of hope that Mr. Sunshine will see a new day. That there will be ultimately a salvation for this very carnal man. But for you and for me right here this morning, the Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit as it appears Samson finally did. God pours out his Spirit powerfully upon men, upon women, and again, he may trouble you, he may disturb you, he may stir within you for a time to awaken you from a mindset on the flesh, to return to a mindset on the spirit. But again, you decide. It's your call to be kindling or to kindle afresh the spirit of God. John 14, verse one, Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And I just pray that you would stir in us. What I am so at peace about, Lord, is when we gather like this and we teach and we're in the Bible together, I, I, I can be a little troubled knowing that 
there are any number of people here this morning, and I don't know where they are. I, I don't know where their hearts are at. I don't know what is needed. I don't know what message needs to be spoken or, or how to reach somebody. I don't know, Lord. And in fact, Father, the longer I live this life, the less equipped I feel to even share Jesus with anyone because I don't know, I don't know how to reach the human heart. But your spirit does. And that gives me such peace. And I have that peace here today. And so I just, I ask you, Lord, that you would stir in us. I pray that you would trouble and disturb those who need to be troubled and disturbed. Shake us, Lord, out of the doldrums. Shake us out of the oppression of life and help us to really think about you. Some need to be stirred up just to the passion and the power of your spirit in their lives. I don't know who needs what, but you do. And so I pray, spirit of the living God, would you stir in us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 